This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. When Joe Biden was seeking the Democratic nomination for president, he loved to talk about Barack, his friend Barack. The campaign tweeted friendship bracelets that said Joe and Barack. It was a little cringe. It was also an oversimplification. There's this narrative of a bromance between Joe Biden and Barack Obama, and the two men do have a real fondness and esteem for each other. But their relationship has been complex and sometimes fraught, as my guest Gabriel De Benedetti describes in a new book coming out next week. Gabe is national correspondent for New York Magazine, where he principally covers Democrats. His new book is called The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. The book explores two decades of cooperation between these two men and how their relationship has shaped American politics in the 21st century. Hi, Gabe. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Josh. It's, uh, it's good to be here. So first of all, why this frame for the book? Joe Biden is the president. What makes understanding the relationship between him and Obama important for understanding our political moment? Yeah, I first thought about doing this book basically the second that Biden was formally announced to be the winner or once he was declared the winner a few days after Election Day in 2020. And what really got to me was there was so much coverage essentially framing the upcoming Biden administration and his presidency as the third Obama term. The reason that bothered me is that I know that that's not how Biden was thinking about it. it. may have been sometimes how Obama was thinking about it, but more to the point, it was just a vast oversimplification. And then I thought a little bit more about how people thought about these two men. And it occurred to me that they were very successful of it when it came to sharing this image of the bromance, as they often, you know, they didn't refer to it that way, but other people certainly <laughs> did. This sort of nostalgic a uh, way of looking at them as if they're just two buddies here to save the world. And as you you just alluded to, you know, Biden certainly leaned into that during certain parts of the campaign, as we can talk about. But I knew that it was more complicated than that. And the reason that I think it's sort of an urgent thing to understand now, this relationship is, you know, Biden talks a lot internally with, with his colleagues and thinks a lot about the fact that people don't necessarily remember that, you know, he was a senator for 36 years before, you know, joining uh, Barack Obama's ticket, he had a very set sense of how Washington works, how change works. But it's sort of impossible to overstate, and I hate that phrase, but in this case, it's true, how formative the experience at Obama's side was for him. You know, he learned a lot about politics and, and modern politics at Obama's side, but also he came to understand certain things about the presidency. He didn't always learn all the lessons that, you know, he now might be thinking about, but certainly those eight years can teach us a lot about not just Obama and Biden, but also about, you know, the way politics as a whole has warped uh, in the pre-Trump and now post-Trump eras. Let's go back a little bit before those eight years. Uh, Barack Obama arrives in the Senate in the beginning of 2005, and you describe in the book that he got off on a pretty bad foot with Joe Biden. And, and he was working with Joe Biden because Barack Obama was on the Foreign Relations Committee. Joe Biden was the top Democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee. They did not initially have a close relationship. No, not at all. And if you ask them, their answer to this would sort of be, well, why would we have a close relationship? Biden had been around forever. Obama was 99th in seniority. And to the degree that they worked together, yes, it was on that committee. But Biden was essentially running that committee. Right. But I mean, but you describe that, that Obama did manage to form a pretty good relationship with Richard Luger, who was the top yeah. Republican on the committee, who could say exactly the same set of things about why we would, would we work together, plus they're from different parties. And yet you describe sort of initially... Obama's actually closer with the top Republican on the committee than he is with Biden, the Democrat. 
That's right. And I think uh, to understand that, you have to understand what Biden was going through at the time. Biden essentially, well, so he had during the 2004 campaign expected to be John Kerry's secretary of state. Kerry had unofficially offered him the job. And then, of course, Kerry loses and uh, Biden wakes up the next morning and starts thinking about running for president in 2008. But more to the point for th- for this particular part of the discussion, you know, he is thinking of himself as the counterweight to Bush administration policy, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's not thinking about his colleagues. He's thinking about his role right now and how he is working with George W. Bush and others in that White House, and that administration. So he's just not thinking about cultivating relationships with younger members. Also, you know, he had been running for president, thinking about running for president since the 70s. To him, the idea of Barack Obama as this, you know, political supernova here to change the world and change the Senate, he dismissed it. You know, he sort of said, why do I need to care about this guy? I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but not by much. You know, Obama, meanwhile, this is someone who ran for Senate basically promising, you know, not to do things politics as usual. Uh, You know, it sort of sounds super obvious now to campaign as an outsider, but he did get to the Senate and immediately hate the place. Uh, You know, it was not the kind of place that he thought it was going to be. And so he sort of cringed at the idea of getting to know and suck up to a lot of the older, particularly Democratic senators who he thought represented you know, the worst parts of the place. He thought Biden just talked too much and wasn't as substantive as he wanted. And Luger was someone who they actually got to know each other a little bit while uh, Obama was campaigning because Obama liked some of the work on nuclear nonproliferation that Luger was was uh, famous for within the Senate. And Luger sort of said, well, maybe this guy might have some substance. Biden just was working on, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. That was his major his two major topics. And, and Obama didn't have much of a role, you know, as the junior most uh, Democratic senator on that committee in that debate. And so then they end up in the same presidential campaign together in 2008. And obviously, Barack Obama's presidential campaign is is a lot more successful than Joe Biden's campaign. Is that where they really sort of initially formed the relationship together? Because somehow they get from this point where they're sort of dismissive of each other when Barack Obama is coming into the Senate. And then within four years, Obama is putting Joe Biden on the ticket to be his vice president. Yeah. And the question that you're asking is actually one that a lot of people who were close to Obama, uh, you know, close aides of his and even friends of his sort of asked when he was looking at Biden. They said, what is this? You know, he was so dismissive of you not two years ago. We were just talking about this. And his answer was basically that during the primary, you know, it's important to remember this primary was basically all about Obama, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, that is, and and John Edwards, and not about Joe Biden at all. You know, Biden thought he was a a major candidate, but he simply wasn't. He had to drop out after getting 1% in Iowa, uh, more or less. So, but but Obama had, he said to his colleagues, and, and he was feeling this at the time, that he had been impressed with the way that Biden during these debates, the primary debates, you know, he obviously wasn't the main character in these debates, but he was pretty substantive. Yeah, he talked a lot, but he was actually making some good points. And Obama also appreciated that Biden was a pretty good retail politician and also that he was really good at, you know, just schmoozing behind the scenes. He wasn't standoffish as some of his other folks, some of the other candidates were. But it's also important to remember, you know, we now think about the vice presidency and the presidency as these two jobs that are super close. They work super closely together. That isn't really the default in the modern vice presidency. So it wasn't that shocking to people that he would be thinking about choosing someone with whom his partnership was not totally obvious. It was completely conventional wisdom when Obama started to think about who to choose as vice president that Biden would be considered because Biden had the things that Obama didn't have. You know, every single pundit was saying he needs someone with gray hair. He needs someone literally with gray hair. You know, he needs someone with D.C. experience. He needs someone with foreign experience. 
But that was also what Obama's own aides were saying, and it's what Obama's polling was showing that he needed. So it wasn't shocking that he was looking at Biden because no one expected that these two were going to suddenly become, you know, besties. So that's the context. But but even then, you know, Obama had a, a number of people on his long list when he was looking at a running mate. But he was he would joke to his aides, sort of saying, "Do we really need to pick someone? Because I'm going to win this thing. Uh, you know, that, that whoever it is is just going to drag us down." And 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 so Biden is obviously on that list from the start. And it takes a little bit of convincing for Biden to be vetted because he sort of thinks, "Why do I want to work for someone for the first time in my life?" You know, he's he's really come around to, "I'm just going to be in the Senate forever, or maybe I'll be Secretary of State one day." Was that genuine? I never believe people when they claim they're not interested in being put on the ticket. Well, uh, clearly it was only sort of genuine because he was interested in being put in the ticket, <laughs> but he was genuinely wary of the idea of suddenly taking orders from someone who was 19 years his junior, who he knew and didn't particularly get along with all that well in the Senate. And he really didn't like the idea of taking orders from all of the eggheads, as he called it in Chicago, the people that he thought were you know, running the Obama operation who whose whole, whole shtick was, you know, everything about D.C., about this place, by the way, that Joe Biden had been operating for 36 years, is broken. So, you know, Obama's trying to figure out who to who to pick, and he's looking at Joe Biden. He's also looking at Evan Bayh, who is sort of Mr., you know, conventional wisdom pick. He was a Democratic senator from Indiana at the time. And a former governor, you know, looks like what you would want on a poster. Like literally, you know, people around Obama would be like, this guy's handsome, we should choose him. Um, and the third <laughs> option was Tim Kaine. And Tim Kaine was, you know, at the time, the Virginia governor, sort of seen as a similar kind of figure politically to Obama, though obviously, you know, Obama was already going to be a historic figure as probably the first black president. Tim Kaine was a Democrat from a, a southern state, you know, was a pretty Republican state before then at that point, seen as this liberal change maker. And Obama really got very close to choosing Tim Kaine against the wishes of a lot of people close to him. At one point, he says to Kaine, you know, upon hearing Kane's argument that you really shouldn't pick me, I'm, we're too similar. Obama says, well, Tim, you know, you are the choice of my heart. Biden is the choice of my head. And I can't decide whether to go by, with my head or my heart. And that's, the, it, he really did say that. It sounds pretty neat now. But obviously, the, the, the upshot of all this, the reason that I am telling this long-winded story is Obama didn't get into the Biden experience expecting to find someone who he was going to go down in history with a joint legacy. He, he was choosing someone to win a campaign and then who could fill a lot of the holes that were needed for him in governing because they already knew at that point that it was going to be quite a tall order once they got to Washington. I mean, you, you reference already Barack Obama's famous contempt for having to do certain kinds of schmoozing in Washington, especially with Congress. And this was a, a, a consistent point of argument within the Obama administration. People would say he doesn't meet enough with people uh, from the Hill, uh, that you know he should, he should get a drink with Mitch McConnell, which he ends up making fun of at the White House Correspondents' Dinner one year and goes, why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell? And the thing that I was always pointing out to people at the time was you'd say to Democrats, he needs to do more FaceTime with these people. He needs to do more one-on-one -on -one persuasion. They'd say, well, Republicans are just so intransigent, it doesn't matter if you do that. And the thing I would point out in response was that it, it was clear he wasn't even doing enough of it with Democrats. And you talk about when he was in the Senate and his reluctance to, to cozy up to more senior Democrats in the Senate. Uh, and you also reference a surprising reveal from Biden 
early into his own presidency in 2021, he's giving an interview talking about his time in the White House. And he sort of lets slip that he has never been in the residential part of the White House before he takes office and goes to live there, which is to say that in the entire eight years of the Obama administration, he had never been invited into the residence once. There are other sort of similar things. When when Obama was working on the Iran deal, uh, Jerry Nadler, the very longtime congressman from Manhattan, uh, mentioned that in you know six and a half years into the presidency, he He'd never been invited up to the White House for a meeting where he would be in a meeting with the president. And so I, it was clear that Obama really hated having to do this sort of relationship management stuff. And so he was going to need Biden, presumably, for some of that and for certain negotiation on the Hill that did end up being a calling card for Biden. You had a lot of these uh, breakdowns between Republicans and the Obama administration, and it would be sort of hashed out between Joe Biden as the vice president, Mitch McConnell as the Senate Republican leader, because it was essentially that was considered Joe Biden's strength rather than Obama's, that it wasn't just for the campaign that they needed him, that they were going to need him for this governing purpose. Yeah, and this was actually pretty controversial within the Obama administration in the early days because, for one thing, you know, Obama was pretty sure that his that things were going to change now when he took office. I mean, he wasn't naive about it because I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but he did genuinely think that a sea change was coming to Washington. You know, he gets in from day one, talks about doing a health care overhaul what we know now is Obamacare. And Biden was the most prominent person internally. He wasn't alone, but he was the most prominent saying, guys, you know, we can't sustain this on Capitol Hill. People will understand if we're just going to, you know, focus on the economy right now. Healthcare is a historic loser. And all of a sudden you're saying that we're going to go all in on this, you know, even though the economy is falling apart, even though, you know, Republicans are showing zero interest in working with us on anything, he, he eventually relents because he realizes, you know, he's not the president. But this is sort of a tension that goes on throughout their time together. And in the early days, you know, Harry Reid does this sort of brushback where he makes clear that he intends to be a power broker during the administration, too, and that he's not just going to take orders from Obama. You know, Obama and Reid became very close, but Biden is sort of stuck in the middle there where he's going to think he thinks he's going to be the Senate liaison throughout the administration. And at some points, that's certainly true. He was called upon to you know, work with certain senators. But it's just not true, the idea that he was, you know, the whisperer all along. Now, when it came time to when they had to work with Republicans, especially after Democrats, you know, lost control, uh, lost their unified control of Washington in 2010, he did really have to work a lot with McConnell. And it was a big frustration to him that Obama wasn't more willing to hang out at, you know, White House ceremonies or host people to watch the Super Bowl. There's this famous story about the first time they try to host people to watch the Super Bowl and Obama's aghast when he realizes that that means actually having these people in his house to watch the Super Bowl as opposed to just, (laughs) you know, pretending to. And so, you know, I, I at one point quote, this thing that Biden used to say to his aides and to people that would ask him about this, you know, he says, uh, and I'm quoting, I'm quoting people's recollection, but what, what Biden used to say is, it's like Obama is at a dinner table he's never been at before and doesn't know it's appropriate to ask them to pass the salt. There are just things he could do that he isn't doing that are offending people. Obama's view is they're never going to move, but they're people. They can be influenced. So, you know, it was very easy at the time to say Obama should really just be schmoozing a little bit more. But it is true that he wasn't inviting people over. And especially when it came time to do things like Obamacare, you know, there were a lot of conservative Democratic senators at the time who sort of felt like, well, we're being asked to put our whole careers on the line for this guy. Why won't he talk to us a little bit more? He he did it to a certain extent. I don't want to, you know, I certainly don't want to go down the line of pretending that that's why this was such a tortured thing, because, of course, the Republican opposition was the real massive thing over overhanging the the entire 
push there. But I think another very telling, you know, way to look at this is in the early in the uh, Biden administration in 2021, he has John Tester, who's this very politically important, moderate-ish, but you know, also fairly liberal senator from Democrat from from Montana very important senator for, you know, passing things. Uh, Biden has him over to the Oval Office. And a few days later, a local Montana uh, news organization talks to Tester and he starts tearing up and he says, it was my first ever time in the Oval. And it was so important to me. You know, John Tester was really important during the Obama years too. And it was sort of shocking to a lot of folks that he had never been there before. One thing about Biden, well, I guess through his entire career, especially during his vice presidency, was that he would gaff, and it was always sort of a question about whether it was really a gaff uh, or whether it's, you know, Biden being strategic and trying to look like he's off the cuff. And in particular, in 2012, you had Biden sort of offhandedly in an interview with David Gregory announces that he's for same-sex marriage. And it creates this pressure where for years it had always been sort of implausible that Barack Obama, this professor from the University of Chicago, as you know, the the entire anyone who was demographically similar to him in the Democratic Party was for gay marriage by then. And yet he was, you know, not ready to make that shift. And it was clear that they were sort of hesitating and trying to figure out when to do that. And Biden basically appears to just sort of give him a good shove and make it untenable for him not to support gay marriage himself. What, what you describe in the book is that there was a concerted ongoing effort in the White House to figure out precisely how Obama would announce his shift on that issue to the point of figuring out like what interviewer they would do it with. They were looking at doing it with Robin Roberts on, on ABC, who I believe right. was herself still in the closet at that point. Um, I think that's right. Which uh, makes her a slightly funny choice. But, but at any rate, the popular mythology of that story then is wrong, right? Because people have this idea that sort of, of Joe Biden, the, the hero of gay rights who forced Obama into this position. Did he actually force anything or was Obama going to imminently do that anyway? And then you described that Obama was pretty pissed off that Biden completely screwed up their whole rollout on this and basically took the glory for himself, where right. he becomes the gay marriage guy instead of Obama getting to be the gay marriage guy. Right. And Obama thought that he was, you know, the political context of the moment was not just that, you know, the, the country and certainly the Democratic Party had evolved quite a lot on this issue. And Obama did look pretty retrograde in the way that he was talking about it when he was asked about it. Um, but it was also that they had just launched their reelection campaign formally and things didn't look that good, especially among liberal voters. They just didn't have that much excitement. You know, they didn't think they were going to lose, but they definitely didn't feel like they had the base behind them as they wanted to. There were some rallies the previous few weeks that they had hosted that weren't you know, filled to the rafters. And literally, they had meetings about this saying, what do we need to do here? So Obama, you know, had been talking with a lot of his aides about how they were going to roll out the reveal that he was now for uh, same-sex marriage and, you know, the evolution as he talked about it. Uh, and Biden was in on some of these meetings. He wasn't in on all of them. But the immediate backdrop is that Biden is uh, out in Los Angeles doing a fundraiser the day before the, the Meet the Press interview. And it's a fundraiser at the home of a gay couple. And he's talking to the kids. And essentially, he gets indignant. He's like, how come, you know, in classic sort of Biden caricature style, he gets really emotional about this. And he's like, how come your family isn't treated the same as my family? He's also pretty annoyed that the administration hasn't given him anything to talk about that's new on this topic for a long time. So he's sort of steaming and writing his own remarks on Air Force Two while getting out there. He's sort of like, I can't believe we just are going to talk about the same old stuff. So he's frustrated that this has taken such a long time. 
So in some sense, it is calculated, but it's also emotional for him. He didn't go into the David Gregory interview expecting to make this news, partially because there was no reason to believe that he would ask about this. This was a pretty boring interview other than that, uh, just about, you know, basic uh, talking points about the reelection campaign. I think um, you noted this was like the 13th question of the interview. Or correct. Something. This was this was pretty far down. After basic economic talking points, after Chinese human rights questions, um, you know, actually pretty substantive stuff, but certainly not the kind of thing that's going to make headline news or that would be written about in a book 10 years later. And, and in fact, Biden isn't even convinced that he's made sort of shocking news in the moment, although he knows that he's doing something interesting by getting out there. You know, he sort of says it, he backs into saying it because Gregory is sort of like, well, it sounds like you're saying that you support same-sex marriage. And and Biden's like, well, yeah, I mean, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but essentially he's like, I'm comfortable with that. And then after the interview ends, as he's walking off set away from the cameras, you know, he turns to his, uh, to to whichever aide is with him and says, I just want to make sure I got one thing right. Uh, I got the jobs numbers right, right? So he doesn't say anything about <laughs> about same-sex marriage. And they send, you know, they then send the transcript over to the White House, the, the vice president's office does, without saying anything. Like it's just routinely sending a transcript with no note about, oh, oops, we made some news here. Precisely, precisely. And then, you know, there's sort of this famous meltdown in the West Wing as they realize what's happened there. And, and Obama does sit down with Biden afterwards and say, you know, the, the commonly told version of the story is that Obama says to folks, that's just Joe being Joe. I know what I signed up for here. But he was angry because this was supposed to be his rollout and it was supposed to be a big moment for him. And this was something that he felt really uncomfortable about being so behind the times on because he recognized how politically slow he looked and how political his his evolution had looked here. And the important kicker to this story is that you know, Biden certainly never apologized because he did feel this strongly and can't apologize for something like that. But he recognized that he had pushed Obama to have to, you know, make his announcement quicker and not on his own terms. But he didn't feel chastened at all by the, you know, what people in the White House saying, you know, trying to trying to sideline him afterwards. In fact, he and his son, Bo, with whom he was very close, watched and rewatched the clip over and over after that together, you know, in private, sort of as to say, look at what I did here. I mean, and, and this is obviously this is one of the most high profile incidents, but you describe repeatedly one of the key points of tension between Obama and Biden being and especially between Biden and Obama's top team being Biden's basically inability to stay on message. And, and I guess the, the question is, to what extent was that about and actually an inability to stay on message versus some of what you described there, where it's like actually he has his own agenda and he's freelancing in pursuit of that agenda. Or, you know, sometimes it could be that he just thinks that the the president is getting bad advice or the the administration is not using the right talking points. And that's why he's going off message. Yeah. So was he because yeah. the, the whole thing with Biden's pitch about why he should be vice president was about his his utmost loyalty to Barack Obama, that he's not seen as someone who was who had his sights on the presidency. Um, he was going to be reliably always in line with administration position on issues that he was supposed to be the maximally reliable team player. And it seems to me like his sort of gaff machine reputation was a way for him to get away from that from time to time without really fully having to to look like he'd been disloyal or anything like that. It's like, oh, there goes Joe again. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that he was playing up the character to a certain extent. At the same time, let's not pretend that he was sort of going home to, to Wilmington on the weekends and saying, you know, what sort of gaffes should I do this week? Where should I push them? Um, <laughs> but I think a very telling point is that, you know, Ted Kaufman, who was one of his longest serving confidants, used to say to people who asked him about this, 
you know, how can Joe be saying this stuff? You know, Kaufman said, listen, he served on the intelligence committee for how many years and never once did he give anything up. He knows what he's doing. So, you know, it is true that Biden is loose lipped. It is true that he says some things that he shouldn't say. No one would pretend that that's not true. But this particular dynamic starts almost as soon as Biden is named uh, Obama's running mate in 2008. You know, from day one, he essentially sits down the people who are his handlers and says, listen, I get that I'm going to be a team player here. But as soon as we get to the White House, I'm going to be a full partner. And you guys better respect that more or less. I mean, he literally gets handed the welcome to the ticket speech that he's going to give in Springfield and spends an hour marking it up with red pen in front of, you know, the axelrods and pluffs of the world, as if to say, guys, I'm going to be on the team, but I'm going to do it my way. Uh, and, you know, the, I don't, we don't have to go through every example, but there are a lot of examples of during that time as running mate, him essentially going out of his way to elbow those guys who he doesn't think are respecting him enough. But very early in the administration, uh, after hearing that Obama, you know, there's this famous moment where literally two days after the inauguration, or a few days after the inauguration, Biden makes some sort of joke that's a little bit, uh, it feels ancient, like ancient history, but he's essentially making fun of Chief Justice John Roberts, who flubs the um, wording at the inauguration. And Obama just gives him this look that's like, what the hell are you doing, guy? And the next day, Obama gives this press conference where he's like, unsurprisingly, I don't know what Joe was talking about. And Biden goes to Obama and says, listen, man, you know what you were signing up for. This is not going to work if I'm going to have you out there, you know, making fun of me in public. And Obama basically says, you know what, you're right. And so then a few weeks later, when Biden makes another essentially wildly cringeworthy statement, that's <laughs> politically not that bad. Obama is asked by his staff, what do you want to do about this? And he says, listen, you guys can handle it. But this is Joe. I mean, this is what we signed up for. I mentioned the part of the appeal for putting Biden on the ticket was that he was not seen as someone who was likely to seek the presidency later, but he never promised that he wasn't going to seek the presidency. And so as you get into 2014 and 2015 uh, and the ongoing coronation that is being set around Hillary Clinton, one thing you describe in here, and, and I think people pretty well know this, is that behind the scenes, Obama more or less made clear that he was satisfied with the idea of Hillary as his successor rather than Biden. I assume that has to have been pretty wounding for Joe Biden, who clearly did want to be president, yeah. that he yeah. he builds this partnership. He has this close working relationship. He is the highest ranking official in the party other than the president. And the president is not not formally out there, but is really behind the scenes part of this overall effort to hand the nomination to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, you in some ways you're underselling it, which is that, you know, he was behind the scenes having conversations with Hillary and certainly sending his aides to have conversations with her about what it's going to look like. And there's one point at which he he calls Secretary, you know, then former Secretary Clinton and says, listen, this needs to happen or it's not going to happen. You need to tell me. Clearly, you are the best person to be the, the Democratic nominee. And so if it's not going to happen, you got to tell me. And this is when she was sort of dragging her feet and saying publicly that she wasn't sure about it. Um, and Biden saw all of this happening. But, you know, I want to take this back just a few years briefly. It's true that it was widely assumed that Biden was not going to run, but also that he had never explicitly said that. So when Obama asks him to be his running mate, or rather when they're having their interview in Minneapolis, their secret interview, uh, he says to his then colleague, Senator Biden, you know, I want you to promise me that this is the capstone of your career. And Biden says, oh, not the tombstone. 
And the idea basically being, you know, you're not going to run for president, right? Uh, and Biden, <laughs> you know, has gone along with this. But does Biden agree to that? I mean, not the tombstone is a, is a joke. It's a way of deflecting it. So he, he doesn't Correct. he doesn't agree that it's his capstone. Precisely. And the next day, in fact, in The New York Times, one of the final lines about the, you know, Obama picks Biden story says, you know, how lucky is Obama that he's not going to have to deal with the awkward politics of having a vice president who's going to try and succeed him because Biden is so old. I mean, you can <laughs> go back and look at this story now. So anyway, you know, a few weeks into the administration, there's a New York Times article about, hey, isn't this Joe guy so good at vice president? And like 39 paragraphs in, there's a line where his press secretary, Jay Carney, uh, his communications director says, actually, we haven't ruled out running for president, but no one notices this at the time. And things like that (laughs) keep happening. So on election day in 2012, uh, you know, no one's paying attention to Joe Biden, of course, but a reporter asks him, is this the last time you're going to vote for yourself? You know, that's a question about running for president because there's nothing else he can run for. And he says, no, I don't think so. So he's saying there, I might, you know, I want to run for president again. So this is all out there. And he really does, you know, feel very overlooked as 2016 starts to unfold in 2014 and 15. And as, you know, as you said, Clinton is sort of coronated by others in the Democratic Party. But, you know, the important thing that sometimes gets lost in the conversations now about this time is this is when his son Bo uh, was very ill and then dying. Uh, And Obama saw how Biden was really struggling with this. And a very important piece of this was that Obama saw that Biden would not be able to sustain a, a presidential campaign. So that is the backdrop of it all. However, that's not to say that Obama would have backed Biden otherwise. You know, he was very, very useful for Clinton in getting people on her side. He sent David Pluff to talk to her. He sent others to talk to her early and often. And that process began before anybody knew that Bo Biden was dying, right? Correct. Obama knew that Bo was not doing well because Biden had told him, but this was not public at all. Bo Biden passed away in, in at the end of May in 2015. And so at that point, you know, Joe was outwardly at least thinking about running for president. But at that point, Clinton was essentially running if not actually. I don't remember the exact timeline. But the, the point being that Clinton was widely assumed to be the next nominee at that point. And, you know, if all you have to do is look at the public reports about all the people who were top Obama aides who are now on Clinton's campaign. I mean, I I was working for Politico at the time. How many different stories did I write saying Obama world lines up behind Clinton? And this was while Biden was still thinking about running. So this was very painful for him. And there are a series of conversations that the two of them have behind the scenes. And, you know, Biden actually wrote about this in a memoir that he wrote about that year that's extremely raw and didn't really get the attention that it should have at the time. But, you know, I did a little bit further digging and he was he was really furious with Obama. He felt that he at least was owed, you know, a little bit more respect, but also just uh, time, time and and he thought that people in the administration weren't giving him enough of a hearing. And he was hearing from a lot of folks who were Clinton skeptics saying, what's going on here? And he didn't tell people that Bo was ill. And at one point, even Hillary Clinton comes over to the Naval Observatory and says, listen, man, what's going on here? Are you going to run against me? And he doesn't he doesn't tell her that Bo is dying. And he essentially says, I'm still thinking about it. Uh, I wouldn't run against you. I would run a positive campaign, which is what everyone mm-hmm. says. But he's very noncommittal for a long time. And of course, this is very uncomfortable for Obama, who sees his own legacy in the balance and who sees very, very painful primary unfolding, not only for Biden personally, but also for the Democratic Party. The thing, though, about this is that in addition to, I I assume, finding this personally wounding that Obama would line up with somebody else, Biden was also right on the merits, which is to say, I mean, Barack Obama thought that Hillary Clinton was a stronger candidate in 2016 than Joe Biden would have been. That was the judgment of most people in the Democratic Party. They were wrong. 
I mean, obviously, every politician in Washington thinks that they should be president. And so it's not necessarily a sign of, of tremendous political wisdom that you think you'd be better than somebody else. But his diagnosis of why Hillary Clinton was, uh, was going to underperform, I think, was largely correct in terms of what voters she was failing to connect with that Joe Biden would have connected with. Joe Biden would have won the 2016 campaign if he'd been the Democratic nominee in 2016. And so I wonder, does that shape the Biden relationship subsequent to that election, that it's not just that you weren't there with me. It's that he was right about this in a way that would have prevented. I mean, I realized that he likely would not have run anyway because of Bo's death. But it is the case that if he if he had run and he'd been the nominee, I think it's extremely likely that he would have won and beaten Donald Trump. It would have been a better outcome for the party. And Barack Obama didn't see that. Yeah, I mean, one of the big asterisks here is it's not totally clear what would have happened in that primary if we did get a Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton versus Joe Biden primary. But of course, that's not really the most important point right now. I mean, everyone was looking at those polls that had Hillary at 60 percent or whatever and was saying that she was unbeatable. But we know now in retrospect that those polls were a mirage. I don't know what it would have looked like in a three way race, but I, I do know that she would have hemorrhaged support as she did. Absolutely. There was a lot of thinking that perhaps that would have helped hand the uh, primary to Sanders at that point. But again, the point uh, I think that we're trying that we're sort of dancing around here is that Biden was saying behind the scenes, I'm really skeptical of the idea that Clinton is the person here that, you know, just because she has this public image, according to the Gallup poll, that everyone loves her. Like there's 20 years of history of people being very skeptical of her, of, you know, the vast right wing conspiracy uh, working against her, but also a lot of liberal Democratic voters being very skeptical. And, you know, at some points he's like, can't believe that all these Obama guys, uh, and they were largely by large guys, uh, who had worked for Obama in 2008, who hated Clinton then, were now lining up behind her. And there's one very telling moment where, you know, Biden has been saying, of course, he's going to back Clinton in the general. He's going to be as useful as possible, but he's going to be, you know, he's not going to totally fall in line to be the most useful guy. And he's saying to anyone who will listen, no one trusts her. This is a huge problem. He's a big consumer of polls at that time, and he sees her trustworthy numbers as a huge issue. At one point, David Seamus, who's Obama's political director, sits him down and says, listen, uh, you got to stop talking about this. It's true that she has low trustworthy numbers, but so does Trump. That's not what this election is going to be decided upon. As soon as the election's over, uh, I think two days after the election, Biden sees David Seamus outside of the West Wing, looks at him in the eyes and says, trust doesn't matter, huh? And then keeps walking. So this is something that is working through his head constantly. And to this day, by the way, is something that he thinks about. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, when you look at the 2020 election and you hear all these former Obama aides being pretty skeptical of him. I mean, I remember you and I talked about this at the time. He sort of is like, well, what do these guys know? You know, he wouldn't say that out loud, but he sees the David Axelrods of the world being skeptical of him on TV. And he says, I've heard this before. Uh, And then so the 2016 experience in that way is very live. It's very live. And so then you describe in the book, as we get into the 2020 campaign, Barack Obama is significantly helpful to Joe Biden along the way, well before he's locked up the nomination. He's not going to come out and, and, and endorse publicly, but he's working behind the scenes in a way that is more or less, I mean, it's more helpful to him than it is to other candidates, right? There are moments when it's pretty helpful, but in the sense that he doesn't want to see Biden get hurt. So when he's helping Biden early on, he's just trying to make sure that there's going to be a high high enough quality campaign. But at the same time, this is when Obama is getting really interested in the better works of the world, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris. At one point, he gets into Elizabeth Warren. He's very careful to say, I'm not going to endorse you, Joe. You're going to have to do this on your own. And he, in fact, is quite skeptical of the idea that Biden is going to be the answer for the Democratic Party because 
if you're Barack Obama in 2000, late 2018, early 2019, you know, you're skeptical of the Bernie left, but you certainly see a lot of this energy, young energy, left energy in the party. And he knows Biden better than he knows any of these other people. He sees Biden as this old, and frankly, he saw him as a slightly tired candidate. Uh, so he was very, very careful with his former aides who were working with Biden to say, listen, I want to make sure that this works as well as possible. But he was also very careful to say, I'm going to be as neutral as possible. And he was not during the primary throwing in with Biden in any substantive way until it came time for basically South Carolina, at which point he starts calling him more. It's, it's interesting that process you describe where it's it's specific candidates that he isn't. I mean, it's, obviously, Barack Obama is never flirting with the idea that he would like Bernie Sanders to be the nominee in, in 2020. But you would think at some point when you're the former president and you're Vice, your old vice president seems a little tired and you're like casting about to the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who has no black support. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that, that you're flirting with. Or, or Beto O'Rourke one of, ran one of the most bizarre campaigns I've, I've ever seen in a, in a presidential primary where he like didn't really seem to campaign. That should have been a sign that Biden was the best thing available. And I, that's, I, I harp on this because this is my frustration, not with Barack Obama, but with basically everybody. But you, you do describe there there is a moment right at the end where Obama really is there in the clutch for him, basically helping to clear the field right as we're getting into Super Tuesday, not quite telling Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg that they need to drop out, but strongly intimating that message in, in a way that helps drive the process that we saw that very quickly coalesced the field after Biden's extremely strong performance in South Carolina. Yeah, and and, and even uh, before that in South Carolina, Obama calls Biden the last or the morning of the last debate and essentially says that gives him a, you know, up speech. It's not substantive, but it's the kind of thing that if you're Joe Biden, you love more than anything. Obama says to him, you know, just go out there and be president. The kind of thing that if you and I hear it, we're like, well, what does that mean? But if you're Joe Biden, you're like, yeah, I got to go be president. <laughs> um, so that's actually very helpful for Biden, who doesn't do that well in that debate, but, you know, does well enough to win South Carolina by a million points, which then sets him on this this path. But, but what was, you know, the important thing is it's really hard to remember this sometimes, but that was the moment at which it felt like Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee. That's the world that we live in. And that, you know, in, in, in uh, early March 2020, the pandemic is bearing down. Uh, Biden looks pretty terrible after, you know, really bad finishes in Iowa and New Hampshire. He comes in second in Nevada, but still by a long way behind, you know, Bernie Sanders. And Obama essentially does the calculus in his head that it's really hard to see what this looks like if Bernie Sanders has to run against Donald Trump. He never says that explicitly, but he's clearly very skeptical of Sanders. And Biden is very clearly the best option out there at that point. You know, they had been talking throughout the campaign, but people that know them very well describe that those interactions as more of like political therapy. Uh, Biden would just rant to Obama rather than specific uh, advice from Obama. But of course, this is also against the backdrop of Biden was leaning really hard into being the Obama guy during that primary, you know, after the first few debates, because he realized people were going after Obama. But, you know, to Biden's enormous credit, he realized that the mainstream of the Democratic primary electorate loves Obama and wanted to hear about continuing that legacy and not about why Medicare for all is the future or about why Obama failed on immigration policy. You can argue those policies, but if you are arguing them within the context of Obama was a failed president, which was the tenor of a lot of those primary debates, you're losing a ton of Democratic primary voters. Biden recognized that.
How did this relationship inform Joe Biden's decision making when he put Kamala Harris on the ticket? What did he, his experience of being vice president and of having this complex relationship with Barack Obama, how did that lead him to Kamala Harris? You know, it's a great question to look at right now when you look at their relationship and it looks essentially nothing like Obama and Biden's did. You know, they're not having lunch every week. Harris is not the kind of advisor to uh, Biden that Biden was to Obama. But when Biden set out to find his running mate, he explicitly said to people, I want to find my Biden. And Obama counseled him against talking like that. Obama said, you have to remember that it took us a long time to get this kind of relationship like we talk about it now, and that it wasn't obvious to anyone that we would get along at that point. Also, you know, Biden was chosen to fit very specific policy and some political holes that Obama didn't, you know, have. He was, for, for, for one thing, he had the foreign policy experience, he had the Capitol Hill experience, he was older, and he was, for a lot of, you know, conservative Democratic voters and swing voters, intended to be a reassurance to them that this, you know, young black radical candidate, as he was painted by a lot of Republicans, wasn't going to come in and change the world dramatically, but that he was, you know, going to be responsible. You know, obviously they they didn't frame it that way, but that was the intended subtext to a lot of what Biden was doing during that campaign. With Harris, he, you know, Obama was very supportive of the choice of Harris, even though they you know, they were friendly, but didn't have that much of a, of a relationship at that point. But it was pretty obvious to everyone that what they were doing at that moment was filling, was answering the political moment. You know, Biden was in search of energy and particularly support from younger and uh, black voters. This was, you know, the summer of 2020. And you look like you're going to say something. Yeah, I think a lot of people's judgment was really warped about a lot of things in the summer of 2020. I mean, Joe Biden was the dominant candidate with black voters in that primary. There was this idea that basically because he was white, he needed to shore himself up with black voters, which I don't I don't think the math is there for that. I think Joe Biden was the appeal there for black voters, which is what we saw in the primary. And, you know, it ended up being one of the highest turnout elections in decades. I don't think people were turning out because of enthusiasm for Kamala Harris. And that's the other thing. Like she's obviously she's younger than Joe Biden, but it's not like Kamala Harris was a, was a youth sensation in right. in the primary. I mean, there's I think it would be an incorrect case, but there is a case you could make about putting like Bernie Sanders on the ticket to appeal to a youthful demographic that might otherwise be less interested. But I don't I think I mean, I think both in the campaign and then in the presidency, the thing about Harris is that she just has not brought much of anything to the administration. In, in, I don't I don't think that she gained him votes there and I don't think she's been like super damaging to the administration. I don't think a lot of people wake up in the morning and are like I can't stand Kamala Harris and therefore I disapprove of this administration. But it's not it, it's really hard to think about like what she is doing that makes Biden either a more effective president or a more popular president. And I think that was basically true during the campaign too. One thing that was certainly the case in the earliest days of her time in the campaign was that she helped him raise a ton of money. There was a jolt of energy into this campaign after he chose her. And that was in large part because he was promising at the time to be, in his words, a bridge to a new generation of leadership. And he framed her as the future of the Democratic Party. It was implicit, but he was pretty much making the argument, this is what the party is going to look like after I vanquished Trump. And remember that summer, you know, he was under a lot of pressure to choose a woman of color. He had been impressed by her campaign. That's a real thing. And of course, it's important to remember that she had been close with Bo years earlier during their shared time as attorneys general. I think that is something that is easy to forget now. But you're right. In terms of the eventual turnout, the eventual vote, it's very hard to argue that there was a large swath of people who were convinced by the Kamala Harris choice. But you had other people that Biden was interested in, uh, like Amy Klobuchar out there saying, 
I don't want to be considered. I want him to choose a woman of color. Well, but didn't Klobuchar say that because she saw the writing on the wall and knew she wasn't going to be picked and that it was better to have withdrawn herself than to than to not get it? Of course, but what? But but the point is that she was voicing an argument that a lot of other people were yes. saying privately. Uh, and oh, that, it's certainly you know, true of, that a lot, a lot of people, people thought right. this in the summer of 2020. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Biden did get, get very close. He thought very seriously about Gretchen Whitmer, for example, who's not a person of color, the, the young governor of Michigan. But in the end, you know, he made the calculus that that Harris would be the most exciting person. It's also important to remember people thought Biden was going to win by a lot at that point. I mean, we we were in a world where he was promising this FDR type change. Because he thought he was going to win by 15 points and have a massively Democratic Senate and House. Uh, so the idea that he was going to choose someone who was going to really help him on the margins in, in Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania or whatever, uh, you know, that just wasn't the way that he was thinking about it in the moment. You know, and Harris was useful for him in the earliest days as he was filling out his administration, but not any more useful than he was for Obama. Is the relationship between the two of them now, between Biden and Harris, is it as bad as it looks in the press? I mean, we, we see a lot of these stories that are clearly based on staff venting about dissatisfaction that goes in both directions between the president's staff and the vice president's staff. Do they have a better relationship than you would see from that? Or is it really is it really that bad? I think their relationship is fine. I think that so much of our conception of the modern vice presidency is painted by the Obama and Biden years where we expect them to be friends and to talk about their partnership all the time, that we, you know, look at this relationship, which is pretty much a normal, uninspiring relationship between a president and vice president where they're partners and she has assignments and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. That's sort of the shape of it these days. They don't hang out. You know, they're they're perfectly friendly with each other. But you know what? That's sort of what it was like for others, um, the fact remains that like the last few president vice president relationships are really weird. You know, Donald Trump tried to kill Mike Pence. Uh, Biden and Obama <laughs> pretend to be best friends. Dick Cheney, uh, you know, was a shadow president for a lot of that for a lot of that administration. Um, but before that, you know, things were sort of no one. Ex- the expectation was not that you had partners in crime. Well, I mean, the, obviously, the Trump Pence partnership did not end well. Um, but sure, because, of course, I'm being glib. Trump had such pronounced deficits in so many areas. He was sort of forced to rely on Mike Pence. More than some other similarly situated presidents might have been. And then, as as you mentioned, Dick Cheney had this really outsized role. So and and Al Gore, at least at the time, was seen as having a relatively significant vice presidency with certain relatively important policy portfolios, not not as important as the ones that, that we've discussed subsequent to that. But it, it's is Harris the least important vice president in a White House since Dan Quayle then? I think you could pretty easily make that argument in terms of the day to day running of the operation, at least. I think it's very interesting because you have in the president a former vice president whose senior staff includes three chiefs of staff to former vice presidents. Uh, you know, it's not as if they haven't thought about this, but there's a lot of feeling around uh, among some of the people around Biden that, you know, he's well positioned to do this job. He doesn't think he can do it alone, but simply that like the role of vice president as conceived by the last three, four of them uh, simply doesn't fit a lot of the the ways, you know, a lot of the, the skills that Kamala Harris has. They think right now, by the way, that she's very useful for them in uh, rallying Democrats around reproductive rights in the post-Roe era. They think that they've sort of found a new a new way to really leverage her, her political positives. Um, but I think it's also important, that the case that you made early on, it's not easy to make the case that she's a drag on the administration, simply that it's not obvious what her, you know, massive value add is on a day-to-day basis. 
before we go, I want to ask about a piece you wrote a few months ago about Democrats casting about looking for, is there any plan to replace Joe Biden in 2024? This is a piece you, you wrote yeah. back in May. And I think, you know, I, I've been, I think some of this talk is waning with, you know, gas prices falling and this various pieces of legislation, people are suddenly Joe Biden doesn't look quite as as tired and out of it as he as he used to, although obviously that, you know, that that he was never as bad as people thought and he's not as good as people probably think he is right now. But that still leaves a question. Basically, we're not going to have that process in 2024, barring some unforeseen event, but we will have that process in 2028 where they're going to have to settle out who the future of the Democratic Party is. What's the manner in which that's shaping up in your sense? Because one of the things that was clear from from your piece and from many others was that Kamala Harris is not going to simply clear the field uh, if right. there is a, an, an open seat presidential race in, in presumably either of those years. I mean, 2028 is a long time. Maybe her vice presidency would look very different after two terms and she would look stronger. But sort of the expectation is there's going to be this sort of open process. Who do you see rising in that process, uh, really sort of making themselves stand out? Yeah, obviously, it's very hard to tell what the world is going to look like in in that amount of time. But I think one of the really interesting dynamics will be how Biden uh, handles it, because he, as we were discussing a few minutes ago, still thinks about the 2016 process. It's a pretty visceral memory for him. So the idea that he wouldn't just support his vice president uh, is a pretty, you know, it's anathema to him. Uh, It's unclear if that would mean an actual endorsement or something like Obama did for Clinton, which is like giving Harris a lot of, you know, support behind the scenes. But that could be pretty dramatic. And and if you look at the very, very, very preliminary polling for all this stuff, you know, Harris is by far the front runner here. Now, again, let's move on for a second and say the world is going to look very different. There are a lot of people who could very easily be running for president, even among the people who uh, had been, you know, running in 2020. So look at the Cory Booker's of the world. Kamala Harris is obviously top of the line, but Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, assuming that he does something else after being uh, transportation secretary. There are others like Gretchen Whitmer, who we were just talking about, Stacey Abrams, if she is in some sort of uh, elected role, though it doesn't look extremely likely right now. The the short version of this is there are a million people who could be there. You know, Gavin Newsom is another, J.B. Pritzker is another. But I think the sort of one of the big ways to think about this is, you know, one of Biden's skills is he's been very good at putting off this democratic civil war that was obviously about to break open into massive combat at the end of the 2020 primary, because he's been pretty good at finding the center of the party and moving on from there um, without letting, you know, really huge fights break out. In the post-Biden era, there's no person who is obviously a uniting figure like that. And one of the reasons that Biden was so good at it in the primary is because he was able to appeal to Obama nostalgia. But that's very quickly waning. Uh, And it's not totally obvious that Harris would be able to appeal to Biden nostalgia in the same way. Because Biden, you know, as you have very convincingly written recently, doesn't have the same kind of uh, fan phenomenon as Obama did. It's just a different kind of dynamic altogether. Why don't we leave it there, Gabe? It's a really interesting book. I, I really recommend it to people, and I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming here to talk about it. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Gabriel De Benedetti, national correspondent for New York Magazine. His new book is called The Long Alliance, The Imperfect Union of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious Newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious Podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds the newsletter and podcast. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo, like mayonnaise. 
Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>